0: Right there. There it is. Uh, we are in James 5, and we left off at verse 3. So the quick backstory for the book of James is James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Jesus, They have the same mother, different father. Jesus' father is God in heaven. Uh, Joseph was James's father. He did not believe in his brother while he was alive. Uh, but now uh, he has appeared to James, and James has become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, of all things. he's A lot of scholars think this is the first book of the New Testament to be written. There are others that say, no, it's Galatians, what have you. But anyway, it's early, uh, probably in the 40s, 45, 44, 46, 48, somewhere in there, A.D. Jesus dies somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. So it gives you an idea. It's pretty close in time um this is a book of tests we're going to re, uh summarize it when we get done tonight uh the whole book but it's a book of tests for christians to ask themselves how am i doing in this area and what about this area and james just covers so many different areas as he writes um tonight we're going to talk about greed and then about patience and then about swearing oaths and then about prayer, a pretty long section on prayer, and then the restoration of a brother or sister who was going to church or acting like a Christian and has wandered from the truth. So a lot of things. And as I said, we'll do a little summary review. So that I know that you're awake. Those of you that are here, say amen. Amen. Oh, that's a good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Beautiful. Most of you are too chicken to show your faces, but Several of you are over there. So I'm happy we were talking about that earlier that everybody's got just their name in the black screen, and which I said I wish I could do that, but it just doesn't work out that way. Anyway, let's dive in. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich, or you rich people, is implied. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes, your garments. Um, so in The style of an Old Testament prophet, he's sort of proclaiming doom, not just on rich people for the sake of the fact that they're rich, but these are special people. And he's going to explain that they've been hoarding wealth. They've been abusing employees and not paying them properly, those that work for them. Um, These are the people like the rich young ruler who Jesus said, if you really want to come to me, you got to sell everything. It's the only person he told that to because he could see that's his God. In the context, Christians are being persecuted in Jerusalem. They're losing their jobs, they're losing um, they're standing in the community because they're Christians, they're Jews, and they are, um, you know, they're under persecution, they're suffering some of them. The other thing, the backstory and for this whole book is some very wealthy, people called the sanhedrin the sadducees especially were the really rich pharisee sadducee and the ruling body was the sanhedrin they are the ones who brought jesus up on charges and had him crucified it's been like i said about 12 maybe 15 years now and they're still there and they're still rich and they're still powerful it is thought that this is an indictment of them specifically, can't be sure, but I thought I'd throw that in, Um, anyway, let's pick it up in verse 3, where more detail is given, your gold and silver are corroded, really, it's rusted, but gold and silver don't rust, but they do corrode, same kind of thing, the value is diminished, their corrosion will testify against you, and eat your flesh like fire, what an amazing uh, picture, You have hoarded wealth in the last days. So we covered most of this verse last week, but I wanted to start with it again. He's saying that they have put so much worth and stock and foundation of their life on their wealth, and they have found that it's a faulty footing, or they're about to. Keep in mind, if this book is written in, let's say, 46 A.D., 70 AD is 24 years away, which is the time when the Romans march on after a sort of a little mini revolution, not really, but a disturbance anyway. The Romans march on Jerusalem and on Israel. They sack the city. They burn a lot of the city. They kill a million plus Jews. They um, burn the temple. To the ground, to the, but it's rock. You know, the gold melts between the um, rocks and the Romans are given permission, the soldiers, to take it stone from stone, which Jesus predicted in Matthew 24. That's a, a judgment that he may be alluding to, which is a precursor to the final judgment, last day's reference. Anyway, so he's talking about their gold and silver corroded. How many of you know that in heaven, gold and silver are worth pretty much nothing? If you get there and you say, where's the gold? They'll say, oh, we pave roads with that. It's no big deal up here. Isn't that awesome? The valuable thing is that you're there with the Lord Jesus and with God the Father. Their corrosion will testify against you or witness against you and eat your flesh like fire. Uh, what a picture. You've hoarded wealth in the... notice last days. Now you say, wait a minute, I've been hearing we're in the last days, but this is written almost 2000 years ago, getting pretty close to 2000 years. The idea of the last days in the Bible has to do with ever since the coming of the Lord Jesus, him rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, the clock for the last days began then. Well, aren't we closer now? Of course we are. Could this be the generation that sees the book of Revelation, First and Second Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 15, all come to pass? Absolutely. Then again, might it be 100 years away? Who knows, right? I'm not one of those date setter people. I've seen too many come and go. There was a book written in the 1980s um, by a guy, and it was called 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1988. I bet you can get it on Amazon for a buck now, if you wanted to read it. Um, Hal Lindsay has predicted, you know, any day now kind of thing. Hey, it's closer than it's ever been. Um, we look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So in the last days, in other words, what he's saying is, if it's the last days, why, why are you investing in the gold and the silver? That's going to mean nothing. You can't take it with you. I said last week and got a few weird looks until I explained it, that every single rich person um, dies broke, every single one, because you can't take it with you. As soon as you die, it ain't yours anymore. You can't take it to the grave. You can't take it to heaven. They all lose their wealth. All of us will lose everything we own, except the word of God, our faith, our salvation, the Lord Jesus. That's the eternal stuff that we have. Therefore, it's more valuable. Um, so he may be talking about the Sadducees. I'll show you that in verse 6, but I saw you reading ahead, so don't do that. Um, Some of Jesus' followers were wealthy. Zacchaeus was wealthy, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Barnabas. Old Testament, saints like Job, Abraham, certainly Joseph, David, were wealthy. Not a sin to be wealthy. It's what you do with it. Hold with, with an open hand so God can take out or put in whatever he wants. Use it for God's glory. Jesus talks a lot about storing up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't you know, hurt the value or make things go away. We'll talk more about that in a second. We said last week that money is the big lie. It makes big promises. And then once you get it, my dad used to always say this, you know how much is enough? A little more. And then once you get it, you know how much is enough? A little more. You start comparing yourself with, them. Well, they have three cars and two trucks. It's all kind of silly, isn't it? It gives a false sense of security and a false sense of pride. The weird thing about riches are people look at someone that's, oh, look at how successful he is. What a blessing. But it can be a detriment to faith because the rich people feel like who needs God? I've got everything. Do you? Or do you not have any treasure in heaven where it lasts? Okay. Verse, uh, I'm reading notes here. Yeah. um, Luke 18 talks about storing up treasure in heaven and what have you. Let's talk about that now. Everything that you think you own and I think I own and my wife and I own, we do not own. Do you understand that? It's all on loan. It's all God's. And some of us, he's given more than others. We are to be good stewards of it, but we don't own it. This week, as I studied this passage, I kept thinking about how many, when you were younger, or maybe recently, played the game of Monopoly. You ever play that game? Right. I used to go for hours in my household. But anyway, the game of Monopoly, and -and so-and-so's got four hotels and houses over here and boardwalk and park place, and look at all the money he's got. When you fold the game up and put it away, it doesn't matter a bit, does it? It's sort of like wealth in our on uh, our lifetimes. So we work for rewards that are eternal. We always talk about that. All right. Um, verse four. Mm-hmm. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. It's personifying. Um, the wages themselves and they're crying out just like remember Cain killed his brother Abel and Abel's blood cried out to the Lord for justice it's a metaphor but you understand what it means same thing here the wages you failed to pay now we real uh, failed to pay we're realizing that these guys are they have cheated their way and and um sort of earned money at the expense of others um these guys have mowed their fields. They're crying out against you. Fields, plural. Notice the wealth. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, this is important because you know this, don't you? The wealthy can afford Johnny Cochran and great lawyers, right? And pay off judges and get mistrials. And justice seems to elude those that are poor or that are the you know, less influential in history. The comforting thing here, Old Testament as well, is that God hears the cries of even the poorest, even the most downtrodden, a weakest member of society, and he will, God will repay, so to speak. The cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. That's very comforting to me. Um, um, let's see. Is that the verse? Yeah, I think it is. That has in some. Does your translation have Lord of the Sabaoth? You have that word there. It looks like Sabbath, doesn't it? Oh, the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not Sabbath. Notice the extra A. Do you see it? It's Sabaoth uh, in Greek, Uh, and it is a, uh, or actually, might be Hebrew. Now that I think about it. Anyway, it means the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of Armies, heavenly. Armies. It doesn't mean the Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Even Jesus said he was Lord of the Sabbath, the seventh day, the re- day of rest. It means Lord of Sabaoth, which is Lord um, Almighty or Lord of armies, Lord of the angelic host, the angelic armies. In other words, he's saying the most powerful being in the universe. hears your cries, those of you that are have been um, oppressed um, or hurt by these wealthy greedy people. They think no one's there to defend them on earth, but God is their avenger. In 70 AD, Israel, I mentioned it earlier, and Jerusalem, the Jews were judged because they had rejected their Messiah. Jesus came and they said, no, we will not have this man to rule over us, us, crucify him, remember all that. So that he avenged the death of his son and also the the oppression that these rich people had put on um, the Christians who were being greatly persecuted. Um, let's see. So that's Lord of Sabaoth or the almighty NIV has uh, verse five. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned the mur- and murdered the innocent or the innocent one who was not opposing you. Okay. Verse five. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. These people are spending money on themselves, not on the work of the Lord, not giving to the poor. Um, It's all about me, me, me. And this is a call to Christians. Remember, this is a book of tests. So we said, I said last week to sort of shock you out of your being relaxed. Everybody in this room, everybody on Zoom is wealthy by world standards. Um, I believe the statistic is the average annual salary in the world is twenty four hundred dollars a year, not a month, certainly not a week, a year. So, uh, a third of the world goes to bed hungry quite a bit of the time. I never do. Can't you tell? Anyway, um, this is a warning for us to avoid extravagance, self-indulgence, just spending money for the sake of spending it. <clears throat> excuse me, on ourselves. Um, we have to evaluate our giving to Christian work, our time, our talent, our treasure versus what are we doing just for our uh, chubby little selves, you know, kind of thing. Um, so uh, let's see. Are we giving to churches and uh, Christian ministries, spending time on ourselves or, uh, or or giving to the Lord kind of thing? Um, let's see. Uh, This last part, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, what they would do when they were going to slaughter a lamb or a cow or whatever, they would fatten them up. He's saying you're getting yourself all fat with money and pride and power, and it's all going to be a slaughter. What happened in 70 AD was those Sadducees, those rich Jews that had Jesus killed, lost everything. And the gold melted, and it ended up in Romans' hands. Okay, verse six. You have condemned and murdered the righteous, or the innocent. That's how it reads. The word one is not there. Who was not opposing you. Okay, now this may be, and probably is, a double meaning. Number one, it can mean generally the people mentioned earlier. The people that were Christians that were plowing their fields, working for them, and then ripping them off and not paying them properly. Um, So they have murdered, meaning it may be a hyperbole for those people. But for people that live hand to mouth, one paycheck at a time, if they don't get paid, it can affect their their being able to stay alive, right? But most commentators think verse 6 is talking about the righteous one the innocent one, Jesus. Read it again. You have murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now he cleansed the temple, but he was still offering salvation even to those Pharisees. And a few of them believed, remember Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one. No wonder God took vengeance the way he did. Um, So that's a, a Another call to examine ourselves that we're not uh, in any way oppressing people that are less uh, wealthy than we are, paying fair wages, all of that. Okay, verse 7. By the way, the innocent or the righteous, uh, Acts 3, Acts 7, Acts 22, is used, that exact term for Christ. That's why scholars think that's what's going on there. Um, Verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. The whole tone has changed here. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the early and late, or autumn and spring, rains. Okay, so James is a funny book because if you read it, just a cursory reading, read through all five chapters, you start to think it's like Proverbs. It's just skipping from subject to subject. This, doesn't, this is not really a new subject. It's a new tone because he's no longer condemning the rich. But the subject is still there are Christians who are suffering. Many of the Christians in the first century believed Jesus was going to come back very, very soon. As we do. Amen. At least we hope, right? And they still saw the rich flourishing. They still saw them pretty much God didn't do anything. He was about to a few decades later. So this calls for great patience. So let's talk about that. We need to all learn that, don't we? I believe that in all the generations that have lived on planet Earth, we are, at least in Western you know, uh, society, America, Europe, what have you, I think we're the least patient uh, generation. I'll tell you why do you ever put something in a microwave and kind of tap your finger like 45 seconds hello imagine having to build the fire gather the firewood start the fire wait for it we're impatient right we can get in a car and be in los angeles in a matter of hours right and yet if there's a little traffic it's oh you know anyway don't get me started be patient and by the way this is one of my sins i need to work on being patient be patient then he's talking to christians brothers and sisters until the lord's coming an indefinite period of time he's going to make an analogy now with the agrarian nature of their society farming right and so he's talking about the lord's coming as if it is a and it is spoken of as a harvest in the Bible, right? Watch, be patient until the Lord's coming. You say, why is that? Because that's when all the persecution of Christians stops. That's when all the rewards that you have been promised are realized. That's when the punishment on the ungodly and unsaved finally comes to fruition. That's when the rich and the oppressing people here finally get what's coming to them. A mass resurrection, the just believers and the unjust. Finally, justice will be served. Keep in mind, before you think that way that I do sometimes, which is justice will be served. Good. Those sinners will get what they deserve. Wait. Remember, you and I are sinners What we deserve is not what we're going to get because Jesus took our punishment. That's already been paid for those that don't believe they still have punishment in their future, if you will. So we wait until the Lord's coming for those that believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. They see this as the rapture. Some see it as the second coming. That's the majority opinion. Um, those of us that see the second coming and the rapture as the same thing that the rapture occurs with the second coming at the coming at the end of the tribulation see it differently but the point is be patient because it may look like boy the evil ones are getting away with it the christians are still oppressed and when will there be justice wait be patient it's hard to do isn't it it comes from knowing the lord's word and knowing that he has promised things, that's going to come up in the text as well. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the early and late rains. Okay, a farmer, this is an occupation of, listen, faith. Did you know that? There's a point at which he's planted the crop and looks out on the fields and cannot see anything growing right? You ever plant seeds and go out the next day and nothing, let alone he can't see the harvest of corn or wheat or whatever it is he planted. There's nothing, but he's looking for the reward of his labor in a sense. Do you see the the analogy? For us, there's a great harvest coming, but in faith, he patiently waits, right? And then there's this term, The autumn and spring rains are early and late. Uh, uh, Let's see. Um, uh, Who has, uh, let's see, who has new international, uh, I'm sorry, who has uh, NASB? Anybody? New American Standard? No? Or King James? Oh, you have New American Standard? What does that verse say? um see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for does it have early and late rains early and latter early and late rains um okay in that part of the world um the late rains are fall uh, or late summer autumn through october and even into uh, October into early November. Okay. And then there's rain again in the spring as well. But the point is, I like that translation because early and latter rains. Okay. There are some that see an analogy here to Joel chapter two, 28 to 29, and it's quoted again in acts two. Um, 17 and 18. Let's go there real fast. Go to Acts chapter 2, right after Romans. Take a left and go back about, I don't know, 12 or 15 books. Acts chapter 2, where he quotes, this is the coming of of the Holy Spirit um, on Pentecost. Look at Acts 2, 17, because there's a promise here, and there might be a tie-in to James. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 in the last days of the latter days, God says, I will pour out, listen, my spirit, not rain, my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Um, let's see. Uh, verse 18 even on my servants both men and women I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke the sun will be turned to darkness this sounds just like uh, Matthew 24 the end of the world Uh, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord that's the second coming and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's your point there, Joe? Go back to James 5. My point is this. Some say in the course of our supposing to be patient, we ought to remember that God has promised that there will be an early and then a latter late in human history pouring out of his spirit in a special way. You heard it described, your young men will uh, see visions, old men will dream dreams, something like that. I can't remember who does the dreams and the visions. But my point is, if you look at the history of the church in the first century, like I said, Jesus dies around 30, 33 AD, somewhere in there. From that time until the the last apostle dies in the 90s, which is um, 90 AD, 95 AD, John the uh, Apostle, There was a great outpouring of miracles, healing, um, all of that, all the sign gifts and what have you. Then if you look on a graph in church history, it drops dramatically after that. We may be living in the last days, times when God will again pour out his spirit in such a way that there will be a revival of tremendous proportions. We may see people being able to prophesy and do miracles, again, for God's glory. We have his word, but it's confirmation as he pours it out at the end. Some see that in verse uh, 7, the early and late rains. I don't know that it's pushing the envelope too much, but I thought I'd throw it in there. Uh, and I, I like the idea. Um, but the farmer doesn't give up. The farmer, uh, knows the harvest doesn't come immediately. He just keeps working, even though he can't even see anything yet, watering things, you know, the crop can't be seen. Um, but, um, he waits for an expected, listen, Future event which will bring him great reward, the harvest of his crop. We look for the same thing the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, and you already know this, but you'll really know it then, and so will I, it was all worth it. All the money you gave to the church, all the time you spent serving Jesus, all the time you witnessed to people and you thought nobody was listening, and it was all worth it because God sees, right? I have a feeling maybe not for some of you, but for people like me, I'm going to see at the end of my life or when the Lord returns, how many days, weeks, months, years, decades I wasted, you know, that didn't, I wasn't doing what I should have done. And you can't look back, but I have a feeling that we will realize it was all true. Why didn't I Witness more? Why didn't I step out in faith more? Why didn't I give more of my time, talent, treasure, all of that? Don't worry, we're not going to take a collection. I just thought I'd mention that. Um, Notice also the word um, the farmer waits, verse seven, for the land to yield its valuable crop. It's the whole thing he's thinking about, right? And that is a valuable thing that we are waiting for. Verse eight you too, just like the farmer, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Again, last days, was it near 2,000 years ago? Yes. Is it near now? Now, there's this double sense in which the Lord's coming is near. I don't mean to be morbid because it's not morbid for believers to talk about death, but let's say the Lord is going to come back in 15 years. Okay. Does that mean it's near? Well, it's near relatively. Then you might say, well, that's a lot of time, but for each of us, we have no idea when we're going to pass from this world to the next world, right? At that moment, it has come because the time we become outside of, we go sort of outside of time. When we go to be with the Lord, the Lord's coming is either our death, or his actual physical return to the earth. He promised he would do it. He will. I'm fond of saying that the prophecies in the Bible, there are two main types. The uh, Old Testament, which has a lot of prophecies about the first coming of Messiah. Amen. Born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, pierced in his hands and his feet. They'll pierce his sides. He'll be betrayed by a close friend. He'll be a Galilean. He'll grow up in Nazareth. Um, you could go on and on. Um, all of those prophecies came true literally, right? I can imagine rabbis reading those things going, Hmm, pierced my hands and my feet. Now, what could that mean? You know what it means? They pierced his hands and his feet. Why are you mentioning this? Because if you read the book of Revelation, you think, Now, what could that mean? I think it's going to go down just the way it looks like it is. Right? As fantastic as that seems, and maybe science fictiony, uh, I think it's going to go down just the way God wants it to and just the way He predicted it would. Um, let's see. Let's go quickly, take a left, not as far as you did before, and go to Second Thessalonians. Can't resist going here. Second Thessalonians, so that's maybe, I don't know. six books to the left, that's a guess. It's where all those books start with T. Timothy Titus, Second Thessalonians, that's how I find it. Um and go to chapter two of Second Thessalonians. Um, and we want to look at just verses one to four because it's on the subject of Christ returning concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. Got the picture? We go up with the Lord and our being gathered to Him. We ask you, brothers not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letters supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Parentheses. What's going on here? Someone had written a letter to the Thessalonian church and the surrounding churches saying, you know, you guys missed it. He's already come. What? So that's what's going on here. There was a prophecy or some kind of a letter and he's setting them straight that it can't possibly have happened because there's still some things to happen. Watch. Saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Day of the Lord is a metaphor for the whole end times thing. Tribulation, second coming, rapture, even the millennium that happens afterwards. Verse three, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day, what day? The day of the Lord. Will not come until the rebellion occurs. Now that is the word apostasia, apostasy, the falling away. Okay. I might surprise you by saying that a lot of people preach the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fancy college word. All it means is it could happen at any second. Was that it? No. Wait, maybe right now. Listen, I'm one of those people that believes it is not imminent. It's close, it's not imminent read this passage. Don't want to let anyone deceive you in any way. Remember what he's correcting, the error that had already occurred. He's going to tell you now there's some stuff that has to happen first. Number one, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Okay, that's the apostasy. That's the falling away. This is a thing that happens in the Christian church, listen, where many that you went to church with, Bible study with, that you prayed with, ministered with, whatever are going to abandon the faith. Okay. Some say, well, that's kind of already occurred or is occurring. There's a lot of churches that are teaching bad doctrine these days. I personally don't believe, I I believe that's true, the bad doctrine thing. It's hard to find a biblical church these days. There are some, but boy, there's a lot of bad doctrine. I think this is a mass exodus from the Christian church. Not everybody, but he's sort of um, weeding out the wheat and uh, weeding out the, I should say the weeds from the wheat, if you will, wheat and chaff. Okay, so the the apostasy has to occur first, the falling away from the faith. And oh, something else. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. That's antichrist. Read Revelation 13, not now you're in Bible study, but after. Okay. Has Antichrist been revealed? No. No. Oh, well, everybody knows it's Donald Trump or it's Joe Biden or it's Obama or it's listen, there's been a million candidates for this job. In the 1940s, people were and 30s, people were sure it was Hitler and Mussolini was the false prophet, and the swastika was the mark of the beast. There you go. Wrong. I remember hearing in the 80s, you ready for this one? Ronald Wilson Reagan six letters, six letters, six letters. What more proof do we need? Sorry, ain't wrong again, right? There's people that thought John F. Kennedy was the anti- or was going to be the Antichrist because he had a fatal head wound. Read, read Revelation 13. They were expecting a resurrection. Didn't happen. What are you saying, Joe? I think Christians, when the time comes, will know that guy, Antichrist, that's him. You know how it's easy to know? Read Revelation 13. He's not a political leader. He is king of the world, folks. He takes over power from all the other nations. He controls the world. He controls commerce to the point that you can't buy or sell without a mark on your hand or your forehead. 666, we won't get into all that right now. Good Lord, I'd be here till Tuesday, next Tuesday. But Has the man of lawlessness been revealed? No, I don't believe so. You may have your theories now, Kissinger or so. I heard that one. I heard Richard Nixon. I've heard so many people. Barack Obama, who knows? Hasn't been revealed. Are any of those guys world leaders? No, they don't control the whole world. The man doomed to destruction. Tell us more about him, Paul. Verse four, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God. Besides being a political leader, a military leader, Uh, an unbelievably charismatic speaker. He's going to eventually exalt himself over everything that's called God. God, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, everybody. He's going to say, I'm it. They're not. Um, So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be, you see it? God. Wow. Don't you remember that I was with, when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. Now, you know, what's holding him back. Whatever was holding him back is still holding him back because he's not, he's not in power yet, is he? So um, uh, the lawless one will be revealed. I'm skipping down to verse eight, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will have a long 19 year battle with. And no, he'll overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the splendor of his coming. The battle of Armageddon is like this. It's over. Sounds so big. Jesus just comes with his angels, seizes the devil, seizes the false prophet, seizes the Antichrist and throws him in hell for a thousand years. It's not a battle because he's not his Jesus equal is not Satan. It's God, the father. Um, interesting verse here um verse 11 for this reason god sends them that's unbelievers a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness antichrist is going to fool a lot of people you're going to know people that think you're nuts for thinking that guy's the antichrist they're going to say are you crazy he's stopped the wars he's feeding the poor he's got a great financial system now A digital currency on your hand? Okay, and um, it's all good. Why would you think he's evil? What's wrong with worshiping him? He seems to have been the only leader we've ever had on our planet that has, he's just like all the other leaders. When you read Revelation 13, you see that it goes back to the language of Daniel, and he's just like the Greek leaders and the Babylonian leaders and the Roman Empire. He's kind of a conglomeration of all of those. Which were all evil. Okay, now that I've depressed everyone, let's go back to James and continue, shall we? Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that's pretty good. Those of you on Zoom, you still awake? I've only got one, two, three, four, five screws. Uh, screens, I mean, not screws. There's a there's a Freudian slip. Okay, verse screws loose. Maybe that's what it was. Um, you two, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Absolutely as near as the second coming or as you and me passing into eternity unexpectedly. Verse nine, as a result, being patient. If you're patient, you don't do what? Verse nine, you don't m- m- murmur. You don't grumble. You don't complain against one another. This is infighting among Christians. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged God takes it seriously when we impugn or talk against other believers. That was in the previous chapter. Do you remember? When Saul is, before he becomes Paul, he's persecuting Christians, having Christians killed and imprisoned. Do you remember that? He's on the road to Damascus, and God knocks him off his high horse. Do you remember that? And it's interesting, Christ is the one speaking to him. Who is Paul, Saul, persecuting? Christians. What does Jesus from heaven say to Saul? Saul, Saul, listen to the language. Why are you persecuting me? In other words, I take it really personal that my kids, you're beating up on my kids. Do you have children of your own? Someone's beating them up. Do You just turn a blind eye and go, no, you take it. That's like, now you're hitting me, right? You stick up for your kids. Okay. Um, back to uh, this verse. Don't grumble against one another, brothers. Don't speak against one another, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, that sounds like, boy, it's he's just about to knock. Like I said, within 20, 25 years of when this was written, he showed up, not visibly. Christ's second coming, but a precursor to that, the judgment of Israel for rejecting the Messiah. Remember, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24 not one stone will be left upon another. When will these things be? Remember, they ask him, and what will be the sign of your coming? And at the end of the age, he answers those three questions in Matthew 24 and weaves them masterfully together, almost to where it's hard to pull apart. Do you mean, is this the second coming or is this the 70 AD judgment of Israel? By the way, I'm not anti-Israel or Jewish. The Jews are going to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many are already right before the end during the seven-year tribulation. Okay, let's get one or two verses under our belt, and then we'll take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies, and I'll see if I can make my mouth work properly. Verse 10 Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, the persecution they're going through, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Remember, all the, he means all the Old Testament prophets. The last of the Old Testament prophets you might be surprised to learn is John the Baptist. He comes, lives, prophesies, dies before Jesus really gets started, let alone dies on the cross and rises from the dead those prophets many of them were uh, Jeremiah is a great example thrown in uh, locked in stocks thrown into a prison thrown into a dungeon he just persevered he was patient many of the prophets you could go through the old testament and talk about their patience and they spoke in the name of the lord god gave them utterance thus saith the lord that means every word god's telling me to say i'm saying kind of thing um Let's see. They were patient and suffering. As you know, we count as blessed, verse 11. Those who have, there it is. He started the book with this idea. Persevered. In English from 2022, keep on keeping on. Persevere. With the goal in mind, Christ is returning. I'm storing up treasure in heaven. There's a harvest coming. I want to do all I can for the kingdom of God. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let's take our two-minute break, and then we'll talk about Job and the prophets a little more. Don't go away. Those of you on Zoom, I'm just going to hit my screen and turn it off. I'll be back in two minutes. All right, we're back in uh, the book of James chapter 5. Find your seats, those of you that are here. Everybody's eating cookies and brownies back there. Um, Go back to uh, James chapter 5. Okay, so the patience of Job. Have you read the book of Job? It's a pretty amazing book. The guy has it all. He's wealthy. He's got a beautiful family. And Satan comes to God and says, you know, that guy only loves you because of how much you've blessed him. So God says to Satan, okay, don't kill him. He limits what Satan can do, but go ahead and test him. What follows is tragedy after tragedy, after calamity in Job's life. And although he's tempted to wonder about the mystery of why, right? The Chris Christopherson song, you ever hear that song? Why me, Lord? If anybody could have sung that, it's Job. Job's got friends that are te- giving him bad advice. Job has a wife that tells him, Oh, just give up, curse God and die. Can you imagine that's the advice of your wife? Just curse God and get it over with. Job has amazing faith through tremendous suffering. And in the end, the good news is there's good news and bad news. The good news is God ends up blessing him amazingly and abundantly afterwards. The bad news is, in this lifetime, God never sits Job down and says, let me explain everything, right? Don't you ever ask why? And you have to just trust God. His ways are not our ways. What's the point? There is no suffering that a Christian can go through that, number one, God didn't allow. God's not in heaven going, oh no, I didn't want that to happen. He not only allows it, but He has a good purpose for every bit of suffering you and I go through. Do I know what it is? No. It might be to humble me. It might be to get my attention. It might be, are you like me? Do you pray more in a crisis than you do when everything's hunky dory? That's not good. We're about to talk about prayer. The point is, God has a reason for doing it. I like to pray, Lord, I'm in this turmoil. Please help me to learn whatever it is you want me to learn as fast as I can so I can move on. But you know what? Some people end up with long periods of time that are dark times. And it's very important, the patience of Job, to stay connected to God in his word with other believers. And not isolate yourself. Um, those times of hardship can make us less loving. We're a little grumbly. Remember the grumbling toward other Christians as well. So we can't become complainers or murmurers. You remember the Old Testament? The Jews were whining about everything. You remember complaining, complaining. Instead of rejoicing, look, God's with us. We're getting manna from heaven. It's a miracle every morning. What more proof do we need? It is enough. No, they were always complaining. Um, Yeah, we talked about that. So um, we are never told why, but Job has some amazing quotes. Job chapter one, um, he loses his whole family. Do you remember? And in verse 21 of chapter one, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he knows better than me. This is a big bummer for me. I'm just going to trust him. Remember Romans 8, 28, God, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to everyone. No, to those who are called the called by God, who love God, who are called uh, according to his purpose. Um, that's a loose translation. Um, his wife and his friends gave him a bad advice. As I said, at one point in chapter 13, Job says, though he slay me yet, will I trust in him? Even if he kills me, He's got a good reason for doing it. I'm in his hands. Boy, there's faith for you. Um, God has a purpose in trials. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this quote. It's going to sound a little weird. Are you awake? Say amen. amen. If a man attacks me with a knife, I'd resist with all my strength. But if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, I will welcome both him and the knife because I know his purpose is good for me so the knife we have to look at our trials and say god has a purpose in this god's not shocked by this this was all part of the plan i don't know anybody who is of strong character who is tough who hasn't been through hard times and afterwards can thank god for the hard times it's hard to thank him in the midst of the hard time but we're supposed to aren't we um God was gracious to Job. He limited the time. He limited how far Satan could go and ended up blessing him, was greatly uh, merciful. Look back at uh, verse 11, the end of verse 11. You've heard of Job's perseverance. have seen what the Lord finally brought about. I won't make you read that long book now, but you should. It's fascinating. Probably the first book of the Old Testament that was written by the way, even before Genesis. As you know, um, let's see, yeah. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Okay, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, talking to Christians, do not swear, not by heaven or by the earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Now, I admit this sounds like it comes out of left field, right? He's talking about swearing oaths a little historical background. By the time of Christ, the Jews had devised a unbelievably complicated system of oaths, binding oaths and non-binding oaths. You say, what's the point of a non-binding oath? When you're a kid, did you ever say, no, I didn't take the cookies and, (laughs) and cross your fingers and put, as if that somehow makes it okay that you're lying behind your back? No. I didn't steal that. I didn't break the window. Okay. The Jews would swear and you're not supposed to do this, but they would swear on the name of God, our father. Okay. Binding oath, but then they had ways around it where they would swear. I swear on the gold of the temple, which wasn't binding, but sure sounds good. Um, you ever hear people, I swear on my mother's grave and Listen, if you're the sort of person that is always having to prove to people, no, I'm really, no, this time, I mean it. This time I'm telling the truth. You're like the boy who cried wolf. You ever heard that story? If we are consistent in our speech and tell the truth all the time, there never will be a need for, no, really, I swear to God, this is totally true this time. Meaning what? You were you were lying every other time you talked to me? I, I had a, I met a salesman once who said, I asked something, I don't remember what, and he said, well, and we've been talking for a while, and he said, well, I'll be honest with you. I felt like saying, well, what were you being the last 30 minutes? <laughs> anyway, uh, Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about how James is sort of a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Matthew 5, 34 to 37, he says, don't swear. In fact, let's turn there real fast. Matthew 5, Some of you are wondering, are you really going to finish the book tonight, Joe? Yes, I promise. Matthew 5, uh, verses, what did I say? 34 to 37, I believe, right? Um, Yeah, 33, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. It's okay to make an oath. There's no prohibition against it, but keep the oath, Okay. But I tell you, do not swear at all either by heaven. that's another one. Instead, I didn't say God, I'm swearing by heaven. It was a way of doing this crossing your fingers. Don't swear by heaven for that's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem. it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head, you can't even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's a restatement of what he said earlier in this book, remember about watching our tongues with which we can sin more readily than with any other uh, body part simply let your yes be yes and your no be no anything beyond this comes from the evil one you might be surprised to learn that in the bible god himself swears oaths it's not it's not a crime to swear an oath by the way if god swears an oath it's a 100% guaranteed promise right? We're about to see uh, a promise that somebody banked on in a second. Um, Let's see. Um, Yeah, no more this time. I really mean it. Let your yes be yes. Be honest with your speech. Um, Verse, uh, otherwise you'll be condemned. Yeah. Verse 13. Okay. Kind of a little left turn subject wise. Is any one of you in trouble? Some translations have suffering. He should pray. Is anyone happy or cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. Okay, what's going on here? Number one, he's dealing with three different categories. The third one is in verse 14. See that, is any one of you sick? We'll talk about that in a second. Let's take the first two in verse 13. Any one of you suffering? in trouble, being persecuted, having a hard time. Okay. Instructions for us from God via James, via the Holy Spirit. What do we do when we're in trouble? What do we tend to do? Isolate, stay home, bum out, get on the treadmill thinking, uh, Doreen and I were talking about this, like in the middle of the night, Satan wakes me up and goes, what about this? You better worry about this. What if this happens? What you didn't deal with that yet? What about Lord? I give you these problems, help me to sleep, right? Get up and read the word for 10 minutes, get back in bed, you'll fall right to sleep. Is any one of you suffering? What should he do? Pray. That may seem like a duh. You'd be surprised how that's a last resort for a lot of people, right? They get angry at people around them. They try to solve the problem themselves. They try to get revenge at the person they're suffering under or angry with. Just plain, pray. I'm going to show you that these two things in verse 13 seem so opposite, and I'll show you that they're the same. Watch. Is anyone of you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful or happy? Everything's going great. He should let him sing songs of praise. It's literally let him psalm, like a verb. Let him sing songs of psalms of praise. You say, well, that's pretty different. No, you know what he's saying? Is your life a total bummer? Bring it to God. Is your life awesome? Bring it to God. It's the same. Songs of praise are a communication with God. You're not singing them for entertainment, trying to main, earn money on the street. You're singing them to God. Thank you, right? The beautiful thing is if you can have the kind of faith, and I can have the kind of faith that can sing songs of praise. When we're in trouble or suffering or persecuting, just praising him, try it. It really helps. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, the Lord, which means God, inhabits. Listen, I can't quote it. the citation. Inhabits, lives inside of, in other words, the praises of his people. So does God feel far away when you're in trouble? Just start praising him thanking him for the trouble. If you can, I know you gave this to me for a reason. I'm in the, I'm going to learn something from this. I'm going to grow from this. I praise you that you're sovereign. And then you're, you're with me in this. There you go. Okay. Let's ignore the problem for a while. Can you praise him for, you know what I'm going through it, Lord? Thank you that I can see my eyes work, my ears work. Thank you that I can still walk Thank you that I'm able to still think. Thank you that I have a roof over my head, that I have these clothes that I'm wearing. You start thanking him for things. It changes your mood. Go back to 13. If you're in trouble, pray. Wait, do you mean pray for yourself? Absolutely. We always say prayer is A-C-T-S, acts, right? Part of prayer is successful. Biblical prayer is A, adoration. Part of the prayer is not rushing into his presence going, here's what I want, A-B-C-D. It's just adoration, praise. Thank you for who you are, that you love me, that your son died for me. You just start praising him. A, adoration. C, confession. Part of prayer, it's going to come up in a few verses from here. Don't read ahead. I saw you. C, confession. Take time to recognize, I know I'm a sinner. You know, yesterday, Lord, I said those things. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have watched that. Whatever we did. C, confession. A, adoration. T, thanksgiving. Part of prayer is always, God, you're so good to me. Thank you. It's great to remember his track record in your life. I remember in the 1994 when I was so distraught and you totally came through for me. I remember when you did this for me last week, 10 years ago, whatever. Look what you've provided for me, the people in my life, the good things. Thank you for this meal of food I just ate. A-C-T-S, supplication. Prayer for other people. Please bless Jeff, bless, uh, Jeff and Doreen. Doreen has gotten over COVID, but she still has the fatigue, as does Kay. Two dear sisters, please give them, you're praying for someone else, give them that energy back and stamina. But part of supplication is it's totally okay to pray for yourself. It's totally, it's not, I feel kind of guilty with a, He's your father, he loves you. So if, is anyone suffering? Pray. But if you're happy, sing songs of praise. You know what? I think even if you have a lousy voice, God's up there going, Isn't that awesome? That's my daughter. That's my son. Right? You and I are going. But he's making a joyful noise. He's singing praises to God. Something special about that. Even more so the corporate worship of several people or a church full of people or just three of us praising God together. Okay. Number one, in trouble, pray. Cheerful, sing songs of praise. By the way, You can still pray when you're cheerful. You can still sing songs of praise, as we said, when you're in trouble. Is any of you sick? Verse 14. He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Okay. There's a lot in this verse, and some of it might surprise you. First of all, whoever we're dealing with here, because we're going to spend some time on the word sick. But before we get there, the primary meaning you read when you read commentaries on this verse is oh, sick, you know, physical disease, sick with the flu, sick with COVID, sick with cancer, sick with three broken bones, and he's in a lot of pain, sick, physical illness. Is that a part of this? Maybe. But the word for sick, is used a few times for physical illness, but if you look it up in a lexicon, the Greek word is more often used in the New Testament for somebody who is greatly beaten down by life, who is weak, who is, feels impotent, down spiritually, okay? They're in a real dark place in their lives. Is this precluding praying for sickness? No, not at all. I just wanted to mention that. I do believe the sickness thing is in there. I want you to notice that the initiative for the sick person and the prayer that's going to result lies with the elders. No. Church body. No. The person. Is anyone among you sick? He, let him, Is literally how it reads, call for the elders. The initiative is on the sick person to say, could you tell the elders I would like them to come and anoint me with oil and pray over me? Okay. Most people don't do this. We have, I've done it, um, prayed over somebody, anointed them with oil. I can think of at least two times. I'm trying to think if there was one of them was in that room right there about five months ago for Sherry Mulkey. Some of you know her. Um, Okay. So the the initiative lies with the person, call for the elders. What are elders? Um, It's the same word for pastor, the same word for um bishop it's the leaders of the church mature solid believers it's male believers in the bible there's no eldresses but there are deaconesses there are prophetesses in the new testament but it's a male role the leadership position don't mean to make you angry growls but that's the truth call for the elders of the church okay now the elders of the church obviously Will be praying for the person. They're going to show up. Usually, it was olive oil. This is not the ceremonial anointing that you see in the Old Testament. Different word. It's literally anoint is literally the word rub. You mean like an oil massage? Kind of. Okay. Oil was thought to be very medicinal. Remember, there's no Kaiser, there's no Blue Cross. This is thousand, a couple thousand years ago. Oil was very medicinal. Many of you know this, don't you? That there's something about human touch, isn't there? A hug instead of a handshake. There's something about it. I love that we're a hugging warm group here. A baby that is born and put over there and they feed him a changer, but they never really hold them, grows up differently than a baby that's been loved and hugged. And I like those little pouches women wear or even men wear them where the baby's right here. You know, I think that's a cool thing. Okay, they're supposed to come, the elders, and pray over him. Picture of somebody on a mat on the ground. Remember, they don't have beds then. They pray over him. Implied is they're anointing him, rubbing him with oil. The physical touch as they're praying, it's a beautiful picture. Some see the oil here as a picture of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know that you can take it that far. Many scholars think it's physical sickness. There are some really good scholars that think that the main meaning here is not physical sickness. It's somebody that is really down, weak. They've been beaten up by, in the context, what's happening? Persecution, trouble, all of that. Either way, anoint them with oil because the, there's magic in the olive oil. Wrong. Anoint them with oil in the name in the power of, in the authority of God, the Lord. Can we do that? Absolutely. There should be no ego about it in terms of the elders doing it. They do it in the name of the Lord, asking the Lord to strengthen this person, raise him up is literally what's the next phrase, heal this person. Um, And then in verse 15, he says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. That implies some things and doesn't apply some, uh, doesn't imply some other things. I'll tell you what it doesn't imply. It does not imply, which some people will tell you, that every sickness is a spiritual problem. Oh, you're sick? You don't have enough faith. Oh, you're sick. You have confessed, unconfessed sin. That's why you're sick, not biblical. So we're going to talk about, and I better hurry because it's 715. Um, What's implied here of the person being forgiven is that they are repentant and sorrowful about their sin, right? The person is praying right along with the elders who are above him for his healing. It's, not out of the realm of possibility that the elders speak to the person, listen, uh, Jerry, I want to ask you, do you have any sin in your life you'd like to confess? He can confess that sin. Are you sorrowful for it? Yes. And there will be healing. All sickness is not because of, oh, you sin. That's why you have that ailment. Is it sometimes? Yes. 1 Corinthians 11 Um 27 talks about taking the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner. And he says, some of you are sick and a number of you have died as a result of doing that as a punishment. Can that be a cause of it? Yes. Is it normatively? No. Okay. Um, But both should be dealt with the sickness and sin when they're linked together. Um, So. Obviously. Obviously. If you've ever prayed for someone to be healed, praise God if they get healed. Praise God if they get healed instantly. But that's not normative. You notice what he doesn't say? Let him call for the local faith healer who has the gift of healing to come down and make a donation and maybe I'll heal you. Doesn't say that, does it? Even in that time, first century, it was very rare that someone had that gift. Are you saying Joe that God can't heal? No, I'm not saying that of course he can heal. He's the great physician, he can do anything he wants. But you know as well as I do, it's not normative that people get healed that often. It does happen. Anybody that has the gift of healing, if Maria tells me I have the gift of healing, I would say, you know what? I'll pick you up tomorrow morning early. We're going to all the hospitals in Fresno Fresno and the one in we're going to empty these places out. The one in Mariposa, we're going Let's go to the Bay Area and empty out the really big ones. Well, now, I don't see that happening. I'm not saying it couldn't happen or it doesn't happen. I'm not saying God doesn't heal. He does. You heard me pray. How many people did I pray for for healing tonight? But trust is very important that uh, healing is not guaranteed in the atonement, and yet it is. You say, okay, now you're talking gibberish. You know what this is? Mental floss. (laughs) Healing is not guaranteed in the atonement. And yet it is. You say, well, what are you talking about? Isaiah 53, it says, by his wounds, stripes, we are healed. Okay, so guaranteed everyone's going to get healed in this life. No, I didn't say that well, then what are you talking about? Listen, context is determinative. That sounds very fancy. All that, if you remember nothing else about tonight, remember that. When you're reading a a scripture, don't pluck it out of its context, because I just did. By his stripes, we are healed. Go to Isaiah 53 really quick, because we're getting late on time, and the teacher is such a babbler, I thought we'd be done early. Anyway, isaiah 53 is the highest point in my opinion of the old testament it's a prophecy about the lord jesus christ roughly the middle of your bible take a left at psalms if you're i'm sorry take a right at psalms to get to isaiah isaiah 53 he grew before him like a tender shoot verse two talking about jesus christ despised verse three and rejected man of sorrows familiar with suffering Despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, but yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Okay, here comes the context of the verse I'm going to quote. Look at verse five. But he was pierced. Isn't that an interesting word? Sounds like crucifixion. What a coincidence. It's no coincidence. This is several hundred years before Jesus gets pierced. He was pierced for our Transgressions. That's a word that means sin. It's a spiritual thing. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's a, another Hebrew word that means sin. The context is spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. Watch. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The context is spiritual. We are healed by him. By those wounds, we're healed because we're forgiven. Okay. So, It is not guaranteed that every single Christian will get healed. If you don't get healed, it is not because you don't have enough faith. It is not because you have unconfessed sin. It's not because you're some kind of lesser Christian. I'm going to show you in a second. There are several people in the New Testament, Christians, including the Apostle Paul, who never got healed, who Paul couldn't heal. Timothy, he gives him medical advice. Take a little wine for your frequent stomach ailments. What he doesn't say is name and claim your healing. Just say it. I'm healed. I'm feeling well, but I have a stomach. Just say it. Name it and claim it. Be like God. Whatever you say will come to pass. I'm not like God. I'm not saying that. Please, Lord, if it's your will, heal me. Why would Paul not say to Timothy, just claim your healing? Let me lay hands on you. He ended up with stomach ailments for a while. He left Trophimus sick in Miletus, wherever that is. Don't ask me. He left him sick. Why couldn't he heal him? Why didn't he say, just get up and claim your healing? Why didn't he say, you don't have enough faith? That's why you're sick. Paul has a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Do you remember that? Three times he asked God, please take this thorn in the flesh. What was it? We don't know. Physical ailment, thorn in the flesh. What did God say? Three times God said, no, no, and no. I like you this way, Paul. My strength is perfected in weakness. The brilliance of a man like Paul, if you take away the Gospels, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Brilliant. Planted so many churches, did so much good. It would be tempting to get a big head if you were Paul. What better way to keep Paul humble than, I got this thorn in the flesh. Some say it was... um, Uh, an eye problem some say it was malaria epilepsy there's all kinds of theories it doesn't matter what it was god said my strength is perfected in weakness god was trustworthy paul trusted him um first peter 224 quotes the same by his stripes were healed and the context there is wait for it spiritual it's not physical so is healing guaranteed in the atonement no and yes Okay, you better explain that because we're getting a little impatient. Every single Christian will be healed of every diseased disease. In this life, I didn't say that. When we're raised or if Christ comes back and our bodies are glorified and transformed, that glorified body, folks, will never get sick, will never die, will never feel pain, will never get an injury, ever. Ever. In heaven, no one stubs their toe in heaven. Okay. Ever stub your toe and like you just, oh, all of that is awaiting us. How long is the healing good for? Forever. How good is that? A little suffering down here becomes much more worth it. The word for healed is Rapha. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah, it's spiritual healing. Psalm 103, it's spiritual healing. I'm not saying don't pray for people. For physical healing, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Epaphroditus, Philippians 2, was sick. Paul had a bodily illness. Uh, We talked about that. Uh, These present bodies are perishable and weak, 1 Corinthians 15. Every single human being, barring a rapture, will die of their last disease or injury. No exception, unless there's a rapture everybody you know, they died of their last illness or their last injury. We're all going to get there. Why is that? The fall in the Garden of Eden. Without that, there would have been no death, no disease, no sickness, none of that. Jesus turns all that around by dying on the cross, though. Um, We talked about that. Mm -hmm. What about when you're sick? How about Psalm 119? It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Verse 75, same Psalm. I, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faith you have afflicted me. I need to learn something. Bring it on. If it's for my good, it's hard to say, isn't it? Um, okay, let's keep rolling. Uh, I'm going to speak double time now. Um, if he sinned, he'll be forgiven, implying that he's been Uh, confessing and is truly legitimately uh, sorry for his sin. 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Pray for each other. We do that. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us, human being. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Notice the subject is still prayer, right? In that third category, pray. It's all about praying. Now, what about Elijah? You know, he did pray and it didn't rain for three and a half years and then he prayed again and it rained. There was a drought. But do you know this? Elijah believed God's word so much. He knew that God had promised to stop the rain and all he did was pray God's will back to him. That's what effective prayer is. What's the central phrase in the Lord's Prayer? My will, oh no, your will be done, right? We know his will in the word. So we do pray, but we pray his will back to him. Sometimes it's revealed, sometimes it's not. And we just say, I trust you, God, whatever you're going to do. Um, let's see, let's keep rolling. So confess your sins to each other. Catholic Church says you got to confess your sins to a priest. We are to confess our sins, listen, vertically to God, horizontally to one another. It doesn't mean I announce the following are my sins for the week of, good Lord, we'd be here all night, right? Find someone that you trust, usually of the same gender that is your confessor, and he is, uh, you are his, and say, or hers, if you're a woman, I'm having a trouble with this area. Will you please pray for me? And I'm confessing it to you and you confess it to God. It means confessing means say the same thing. You turn from the sin and repent and you want to go the other way, if you will. Um, Yeah, we already talked about that. Catholicism. Yeah. Praying to a priest, not, not biblical, by the way, they give you penance to say, we have some ex Catholics over here. My buddies, they give you penance to say, which is repetitious prayer. Say 14, our fathers and 13 Hail Marys. And you go, our father, what think, what think, what well, I was a worse sinner than you then. Well, you got two or three Hail Marys and five, our fathers. The point is we, you repent of your sin and confess. Okay. Uh, we talked about Elijah. That's First Kings 17 and 18. Uh, we don't need to turn there, um, but his prayer was in harmony with God's will, and he knew it. Verse First John 5:14 says, "If we ask anything and it we it's in accordance with we with His will, we know that He hears us. We know that we have the thing we prayed for. So let's keep rolling. Um, 19 interesting last subject, and we're going to go a few minutes late probably. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What the heck is going on there? This is a person that you know from church. He or she was a believer, and now they've gotten confused, and they are wandering away. They're drifting away from a truth he hasn't come to church in a while he says he believes some weird stuff now that doesn't come from the bible he's getting messages from the cosmos and getting kind of new agey or whatever or just getting into sin guess whose job that is to turn that person back yeah the pastors should the elders should this is any one of you if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone Bring him back. Call him up. Hey, we missed you at church. What's going on in your life? Well, that's not my job. Yes, it is. I'm not a pastor. Neither am I. It's all of our jobs, right? Talk to the person, pray with the person, set him straight with scripture, not confrontationally, but lovingly. Say, you're you're wandering, you're you're kind of floating away from God. You need to come back and Remember this, verse 20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. Wow, that's serious, isn't it? Like save his life in a real sense. Does that mean he won't die? No, it means he won't die the second death, which is hell forever, which is what all unbelievers deserve. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way brings him back, will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's Old Testament language, like a, a sacrifice was a covering for sin. He's saying by bringing him back, his sins are now under the umbrella covered of Christ's sacrifice and the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Without that, he's out there in the um, outside of the umbrella and is in danger of death. So that is our job to do so. We do not have time to summarize the book, but I apologize. Next week, we'll study first Timothy. Probably finish the whole book in one night, don't you think? Yeah. Sure. Let's close with prayer because we're a little late. I apologize. If you get the notes, you'll see the whole it's a two page summary of the whole book. I advise you to get it and look at it because it's a bunch of tests. How am I doing with my attitude and persevering in trials? How am I doing uh, being a doer of the word and not just a hearer? How am I doing not practicing favoritism or controlling my tongue or not swearing oaths? How am I doing with that brother that I know that's wandered away from the faith? Am I going after him? Am I talking to him or her? Um, in any case, thanks for being here. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in your word. What a, what a glorious thing to be able to do, God. Help us to examine ourselves according to the book of James. And 1 John is another one that does this, a series of tests. How are we doing with regard to greed and materialism, what we studied tonight? Give us that eternal perspective about money, God. It doesn't last. It never fulfills its promises. Give us more patience when we're persecuted, Father, and more faith. Uh, Help us to speak honestly without having to swear by any oath. Show us the incredible power there is in prayer and praise of your son. Uh, Prayer to you, praise of you and your son, Jesus God. Um, Help us to remember what we've heard tonight, God. Help us to have that desire to restore a brother. Help us to look at ourselves honestly and change what needs to be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time we could spend in your word and the glorious beauty of the book of James and the truth in it. We pray you'd bless each one here and uh, use us for your glory, God. Help us to remember what we've learned and put it into practice. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. Those of you that are here in person, make sure you introduce yourself to someone you don't know. Very important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. We'll see you next week, hopefully. Have a great night.